Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my seminary professors once said, Scripture is a lion. Let it roar. Don't apologize for it, but boldly declare it. If you make a mistake as you're reading scripture, don't apologize, just do it again. And as you are preparing for sermons for your parish when you become pastors, allow yourself time to live under the text. Allow it to speak to you and guide you, even as you are called to speak into the lives of your congregation and guide them. So as I was preparing for this sermon today, a living under the text moment was happening for me, and I would really not rather preach this sermon, but this is the sermon that I feel compelled to share. When I graduated from college, I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I graduated with a degree in psychology, but didn't know how I would use it. I wouldn't use it in some traditional or professional sense exactly. So as I thought about it, I thought, you know, as a young single person, it's probably time for an adventure. So I found a missions organization that took American Christians, trained them to teach English around the world, and I became a part of this, this group and was trained by them to teach English and sent to the Czech Republic. The idea was that as English teachers, we would um, be respectable to our students, we would build relationships with them, and then these relationships might open opportunities for conversations about faith. That was the idea. Those two years that I taught were quite the adventure, but not really a vacation. Many of my adult students took it upon themselves to teach me about Czech culture, the food, the beer, the history, the people, the personality of the Czech Republic. Some even took it upon themselves to warn me about one of the people groups that they didn't like, called the Roma, or the slang is gypsies. They were described as menacing, ungrateful, pickpockets, nonconformists, unceasingly procreating just to take advantage of the system. One of my students described that she had worked in social services for a little while, but didn't last long because she was so disheartened, because it seemed like they were never able to really improve their situation, and they were ungrateful. She even told me a story about how one of her students lived in a government-owned building and burned it down. Now, I wish I could say that in response to these stories and these warnings, that I was generous, that I suspended judgment, that I didn't discount a whole group of people because of secondhand stories and information. But the truth is, I did. I accepted the narrative of my students and actually felt thankful that I would never get mistaken for a Roma person because my skin was lighter, like the color of my students, and not like the Roma people. The other part of it is that I rarely thought about it. My exposure to the Roma people was so little that I rarely confronted the negative narrative that I'd been given about them. Years later, as I think about this experience, I feel pretty uncomfortable. 
I didn't care to challenge the narrative I had been given. I simply lived within that schema. It's also amazing to me that I never once wondered if a part of my calling to the Czech Republic was to be challenged and to build relationships with the Roma people, with people who weren't my students. I had a pretty narrow view of what God desired of me those two years. I recognize that in sharing what I've just done, I've outed myself. And I'll admit that I have quite a ways yet to grow. But I share this story because this is exactly the kind of growth that Jesus is looking for in Mark 7. In Mark 7, Jesus, earlier in the chapter, has an encounter with the religious leaders, and it turns out to be a turning point in his ministry. The religious leaders are upset with Jesus' disciples that they don't do a ceremonial cleansing of their hands. Now, it's important to note that this has nothing to do with sanitation. This is a cleanliness concern, being right before God. Jesus' disciples don't perform the ceremonial cleansing, and the religious leaders want to make sure that this negligence, or whatever excuse Jesus may offer, is rectified the next time. And as Jesus often does, he doesn't exactly respond the way that they expect. He instead talks about the heart of the matter. The religious leaders are concerned that everyone is ceremonially clean before God, but their hearts are selfish and unclean. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he has focused on bringing the good news to his own people, to the Jews. But in the Gospel of Mark, this experience with the religious leaders marks a shift in his ministry. Jesus leaves Gennesaret and enters the Gentile or non-Jewish area of Tyre. Mark seems to indicate that Jesus is in Tyre to get a break, or at the very least, that he doesn't intend to do any public ministry. As we see in verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. A Greek Syrophoenician woman barges into the house on Jesus' vacation and falls at his feet. Now, let's make sure that we're understanding a few things here. First, this person is a woman. Men and women were not supposed to interact in public because it would put into question their morality. Second, this woman is a Greek, so she's not a Jew. She's unclean. Third, she is Syrophoenician, meaning, meaning she's the wrong ethnicity. She's associated with the evil Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. Her people are. According to theologian R. Martin, she is a born loser on three accounts. She's the wrong gender, she's the wrong religion, and she's the wrong ethnicity. On top of all of that, her daughter is possessed with a demon. She is absolutely not supposed to be here. She is unclean. Surely, Jesus will condemn her and send her away. But this woman is audacious. For some reason, she believes that Jesus will heal her daughter. Even though he has never done this for people like her before, she believes that he will heal her daughter. 
She's got nothing to lose. So she falls at his feet and begs Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus' reply is what we might expect of a rabbi of his time. He refuses her. It only makes sense. His, person, his purpose at this point is not to this woman or to people like her, but to his own people, the Jews. Eventually, the good news will be shared with Gentiles and people like this woman, but not now. Mark seems to indicate that Jesus doesn't yet intend for that shift to take place, but to only keep it to the Jews. See verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. In this one verse, Jesus indicates a number of things. Jesus' purpose is to prioritize the children, the Jews. This woman is therefore not the priority. In this analogy, she is more like a dog, which was slang, which was negative for, for the Greeks of the time. Jesus calls her a little dog, but that's no pet name. This is still pretty harsh. It doesn't lessen the sting. As readers of this ancient text, we're not privy to Jesus' body language or tone of voice. We don't know the twinkle in his eye or any extra kindness in his voice to indicate that he's not serious. All we see are the words that he spoke, and they're really uncomfortable. They are the kind of words that most people would be embarrassed to hear out loud and definitely scared to say out loud. And perhaps that's the point. What Jesus is doing here is shining a light on the deep, dark thoughts. And when they're spoken out loud, it feels really uncomfortable. When this same story is told in Matthew 15, we, we notice that a, the, a part of the audience is Jesus' disciples, so it's a teaching moment. And here in Mark, we don't hear of anyone else but Jesus and the woman. So with whatever tone, whatever eye Jesus gives this woman, this woman is not deterred. She persists, and she presses Jesus' metaphor to make her case. She doesn't deny being desperate and lowly. And actually, with the greatest respect, she calls him Lord, which is the only time in the Gospel of Mark someone calls him Lord. And she reminds him that even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The food might be meant for the children, but there are still crumbs left over, and there is more than enough for her daughter. Please. This story is incredible. This woman, this outsider, knows that Jesus is the only one who can heal her daughter. And she'll do whatever it takes. She is willing to put herself on display and shame her in front of Jesus and whoever else is there. It doesn't matter. She won't take no for an answer. She will be there until she gets a yes from Jesus. Because she knows deep within her bones that if only Jesus can give her the scraps, it will be enough. There's something remarkable about being desperate. You're willing to try anything, do anything to alleviate the desperation. 
your vision becomes narrowed and you push and you push and you push. There's an interesting notion among many Christians that you and I must passively accept whatever happens because whatever happens must be God's will. Now, this story in Mark 7 and other stories like this, like Abraham on behalf, negotiating on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, seriously challenge that notion. And in these stories, God honors the negotiation and seems to, in fact, appreciate it. In Mark 7, Jesus honors the woman and says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus tested the woman, and the woman passes with flying colors. And she becomes an example for all others to imitate. After this encounter with her, Jesus completely shifts his ministry so that his ministry is now to non-Jews, Gentiles, to outsiders like this woman. It's pretty amazing that a desperate outsider can be the catalyst for change in even Jesus' ministry. The woman knows that she is not outside the grace of God, and she fights for whatever scrap she can get. It's all too easy to believe that for whatever reason, maybe we've been Christians for a long time or have studied, been disciplined, and even have had miraculous things happen in our lives that we somehow have a corner on God. Maybe also if we're in positions of authority or we are better off, better, we are doing well financially, we conclude that God must really be pleased with us, that this must be affirmation of God's pleasure and that we're therefore better than them. Now, I hope that in saying this, you recognize I'm not pointing the finger out there without also pointing it back at myself. Mark's contrast in chapter 7 of the religious leaders with the desperate outsider is stark. With it comes a caution that those who are on the inside may not be, and those who are on the outside may not be either. No one is on the inside because of good breeding, success, and good behavior. And no one is on the outside because of their gender, ill breeding, or lack of success. Though this is the way of the world, this is not how God works. As we read in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish ways of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Fortunately, it doesn't work like that. You and I and all people have been created and are loved independently of anything we've ever done and independently of anything we will ever do. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. With Jesus, there is no one outside his love 
no one outside his goodness. There are no longer any outsiders. And as the church, we seek to resemble Jesus' love for all our neighbors, for everyone. Imagine what it would look like for everyone to feel welcome here, to feel that this is their home, their family. What an exciting, diverse place this would be. And one day, this is precisely what it will look like. As we hear in, in Revelation 7, I looked and before me a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you that you have brought us into. We thank you that we are not outsiders, that no one is outside of your love and your grace. We thank you for this incredible story of this woman who refused to, to hear no. We thank you that you provide us an opportunity to challenge you and also to recognize that even the scraps of goodness is enough. God, I pray that we would not elevate ourselves above anyone, but recognize that we are all the same in your eyes. We are all loved by you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.